This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You are listening to It's time for your Nooner with Dooner. Welcome to Monday, everybody. I'm a little box in a big world. I look good there. Breaking news, everybody. Got some, got some big news. Your boy. He went from, like, art school dropout at CalArts to getting a, uh, an honorary degree from the University of Arkansas. But that's not the breaking news. The breaking news is that academia has come for me again. I'm proud to announce the University of Tennessee. Knoxville has made a blockbuster signing. Me! Top. GBO! Can't believe it, man. I got this letter. They reached out to me and says, Dear Tim, it was with great pleasure that I invite you to join the advisory board for the digital marketing program at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Membership on the board is by invitation only. It's based upon your personal and professional accomplishments. The board is comprised of a diverse, innovative, and extremely well-connected network of top executives. I can't wait to learn from all these great people. Thank you, Big Orange. Thank you, volunteers. My Tennessee hat is in the mail. It's coming. Now, it's Monday. Usually, I start these off with bad news. There's nothing good going on. Well, that's going to change because Craig Fuller put this tweet out over the weekend. Check it out. He's our CEO and founder here over at Freight Waves. And if you're not following on X, what the hell are you doing? Go look up Freight Alley. He says, let's start this Monday off right with something positive. Freight Waves CEO and founder posted this. He says, tender rejections are the highest levels they've been in six months at 4%. Volumes are up 12% in the past six months and have been increasing throughout the year. For most of the year, tender rejections didn't follow the higher volumes, suggesting that there was too much capacity in the market. But in the past month, that has changed. In the past 30 days, tender rejections are up 26%, while volumes are only up 1%. Why? Well, you've seen the rates, right? Carriers can't survive these. They've been stuck at $224 forever. But you all see those high gas prices, over $4 for diesel. The smaller fleets that are exposed to that are getting murdered out there. Go follow Craig. Go get that information. But things could be turning around. On today's show, I'm talking to the biggest plush seller on Amazon. We'll get into prime day results, peak season prognostications. And if retailers have worked through their inventory glut, that's Via Heart president Molson Hart. He's going to break it all down. He also uh, shares insight on how to shoot your shot, when to develop new business ideas, and why you men, why you, you shouldn't wear polyester underwear. It could be bad for your tea. You don't want to be a low-tea guy, do you? We're keeping up with the Jones Act when Campbell University professor Sal Mercagliano and Marine Traffic Executive Captain Aldi as Sheik debate the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. Very controversial amongst you ocean heads. Fleetworthy Solutions CEO Mike Prichet, he has a report on what his customers are saying about inventory levels and what it means for trucking volumes. Prichet also advised on how to expedite our assets. Plus, we've got car carrier crashes, Hollywood delivery robots, and of course, a whole bunch more. One last thing, disruption alert, freight waves reports, tropical storm Adelia. Adela? Adelia. I haven't heard this yet. Adelia is gaining strength and is expected to become a major hurricane before making landfall on the Florida Gulf Coast later this week. CNN says it could be as dangerous as a Category 3 and is expected to landfall on Wednesday. So keep an eye on that. Keep uh, abreast of, like, FreightWaves.com. FreightWaves now. They'll keep you up to date. Time to tip the band. We'll get into the show. You may think of AIT Worldwide Logistics as an average U.S. forwarder, but in the past decade, they've, be they've evolved to become a global logistics powerhouse. Today, AIT is customizing supply chain solutions for multinational Fortune 500 companies, shipping between Asia, Europe, the Middle East, and North America. Despite the company's exponential growth, they are still the experts when it comes to creating tailored plans that fulfill your supply chain requirements. Find out how your business can benefit from the logistics pros at AITWorldwide.com. Hey, let's take a look at our one of our guests, TikToks, before we bring Molson on. I own the biggest plush company on Amazon, and I'm going to show you how to fluff up your plush. Ever get a plush online and it comes all scrunched up like this? Here's how you fix it. All you need to do is grab the plush animal and shake it. 
Look how nice he looks now. Want to try for yourself? Search Viaheart Plush on Amazon.com. Wow, looking good there, Molson. Molson Hart, present over at Viaheart. What's up, dude? Uh, not too much, man. I'm super happy to be here. You, you've probably fluffed a lot of plushes, haven't you? Yeah, over the years, you have to do some weird stuff to, to be the biggest plush seller on Amazon. <laughs> We're going to get into all that, but now that video got me curious. Is, is that how all plushes arrive? Are they all like vacuum sealed, super thin? I've actually ordered from Amazon, and usually like when, by the time it comes to me, the consumer, they've been like depacked and, and already fluffed, but uh, you guys get them all vacuum sealed? It depends on who you buy from. When containers were like $25,000 to move across the Pacific to uh, Texas, we had to scrunch the animals as tightly as we could to get as many plush in those containers as possible to save as much money as possible. But now the container prices um, across the ocean are like $2,000, $3,000 a pop. It's not as necessary to like vacuum seal them and to scrunch them up, which ends up obviously being a, uh, a better experience for the customer. Molson, you've had a, uh, a rough summer. You tweeted that the last three months, you've personally experienced a person mugged on your street. Your neighbor got their car stolen. There was a homeless encampment 10 feet from a playground. A 300-pound tire slammed into a warehouse building, which I believe was your warehouse building. You had $1,000 worth of pallets stolen over a weekend. What's been going on, man? How has this summer been treating you? Well, I live in Texas, so every summer is horrible because of how hot it gets. But um, yeah, man, I don't know. It, I don't know if it's like a crime epidemic wave or maybe something that just like revolves around me. But like, I can't complain. I mean, I'm just like bitching on Twitter, but, you know, things could be a lot worse. But yeah, to your point, it was super frustrating to have this like big 300. I don't know how much those tires weigh. A 300 pound tire just like slammed into our building and like put a real hole in it. We actually have a clip of that. Roll the clip of this tire. This dent in our warehouse, which is like about five feet or so, maybe four and a half feet tall, was made by this huge tire, which is about four feet wide that came off a truck. It somehow managed to clear two hills, like mini hills on detention ponds, hit this, this uh, I don't know what to call these cattail type things, bounce, and just slam right into our building. And I guess the spin took it over here, but it's pretty crazy. I don't know how much it's gonna cost to fix this because these panels are pretty tall and I don't know if it damaged the steel purlin at the bottom, but this sucks. Of course, the trucker uh, did not stick around. I mean, it's technically possible that the tire flew off and um, he didn't know where it went. Um, and it's also true that we found the tire somewhat after the collision. The whole building shook, but we didn't know what caused the whole building to shake until later. But it just sucks, man, because that should have been covered by the driver's insurance policy. But no driver, so now we have to pay for it. Great. Molson, what's been the aftermath of that? Because that happened a little while ago, right? That wasn't like yesterday. Nah, that, that happened like maybe two months ago. Um, we tried to like find the trucker based on like a serial number on the tire, but it turns out that you can't really do that. And we like, I spoke to some cops about it, but there was really no one to chase down. And as I said in the video, it's technically possible that the truck driver didn't know that the tire flew off, slammed into our building and caused it to shake. So we basically replaced the panel and I think it ended up costing a thousand dollars. Uh, so not the end of the world, but, uh, in the moment, very frustrating. Have you you mentioned the pallet theft? Have you experienced a lot of inventory theft? Uh, I don't know. Um, it's it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, when you bring temps in, um, when you operate a warehouse, things go missing in your warehouse all the time, and you don't know if it's because you didn't receive the right quantity at the beginning. Maybe the factory shorted you, or you shipped out too much, or maybe some someone stole something. I've never caught anyone stealing anything in our warehouse. Our plush animals and educational toys are awesome, but it's not like we're selling like jewelry and stuff like that. So I don't think there are the same incentives to steal, but who knows? You ever find them on eBay and you're like, ooh, ooh, we got a leak. Yeah, uh, I, we, we, we monitor that. And like, if you see someone selling like new product at low prices, you definitely need to like figure out how that is getting to the market because um, it can hurt your own sales. And it, as you said, it, it could be theft. Um, we did once have this like 75 year old woman who would repeatedly fish 
the, the returned plush that we had thrown away into our dumpster out of a dumpster. And um, we had her on camera. And like one day she crawled into the dumpster and like fell and ended up passing out in the Texas dumpster for like two full hours. And then like waking up and then like kind of emerging with like a plush snake. Uh, so that, that's the extent of the uh, theft that we have experienced so far. Did she earn the plush snake at that point? Yeah, I mean, we we basically, she was like a little bit like crazy, but like at some point I had a conversation with her. She told me this, like how she had passed out in the dumpster and we had her on video and we uh, we coordinated with her and we're like, look, you come by and you just like pick whatever you want that we were going to throw away anyway. And she would go she called it like dumpster diving with Nana. She would have her grandkids and she'd even like hoist them into the dumpster and stuff like that. But uh, we said that that wasn't safe. So we just had her come by and she'd like pick from like a giant Gaylord of stuff that we were going to throw out. But we've moved to uh, Austin area now. So we don't have dumpster diving with Nana anymore, unfortunately. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Oh, well, that's good. Well, how, well, let's talk about, like, a big storyline supply chain had been inventory. Everyone has too much inventory. That's why there's no freight moving. What about the world of plush? The, the biggest plush seller on Amazon must be selling tons of plushes. And you also do brain flakes, which my kids love, the interlocking bricks. What's going on with toys? I, I can also imagine with the economy, it might be getting hurt a little bit. Yeah, I mean, our wholesale sales are doing really well, and that's why I'm positive about this year. But you, you're totally right. Our, our sales on Amazon are down, um, both for Brain Flakes, which is our building toy, which is behind me if you're watching, and also for our plush. Um, we had like a just like a horrible August. Like basically from April through now, with the exception of July, every month on Amazon, our sales have been lower than uh, the same month last year, um, as low as 15% down. Like August, um, it, it looks really bad. The month isn't over, but it looks like it could be a, as much as like 20% down, which is like really, really, really bad. I mean, part of it is some bad stuff that happened to us on Amazon, but uh, all, uh, part of it is also the economy. But I, I like to take as much blame for it as possible. You know, just try to focus on what's in our control so we can like improve our sales and like stay motivated instead of just like blaming it on the economy. Well, Amazon Prime Day, big, big holiday for retailers like yourself. It has to be. Did it meet? Did it exceed your expectations? Was it worse? What was this year's like? It exceeded my expectations. We had like a massive Prime Day. We didn't run any deals, but just like a ton of people showed on, showed up onto the Amazon website and like bought a ton of stuff. And that's why uh, July was the only month, as far as I could tell, that had better sales in 2023 than we had in 2022, April through June, and uh, also it seems like August have all been down. But July was great. So I think Amazon did pretty well uh, on their prime day. What is the key to selling plush? And like, why have you been successful? How did you become the largest seller? Um, so uh, there, there's a, we might talk about this, but there's a video on TikTok about like how um, to find new business ideas. And so the way that we originally got into plush was that there was this really cool like tiger backpack that was being sold um, in Asia. And I, and I was like, oh, that's really cool. Let's bring that to America. And um, I needed to find a factory that would make that. And it turns out that the factory that made that was a plush factory. And so this is like going back like eight years or so when it was really easy to sell on Amazon. And so then I was like, well, why don't we start selling plush animals too? So that's how we got into plush. Um, Eight years later, we're really focused on education and making a high quality product. How did we become the largest plus plush seller on Amazon? Um, we kind of like go with the original Sam Walton, like sell a great product and like sell it cheap and you're going to sell more than everybody else. So we're fanatical about like quality and keeping prices low. That means we always bring in full containers. Um, we never bring in anything less than that because when you bring in a full container, that's how you get the cheapest price. 
I'm like constantly, and my team is doing a great job with this, busting the balls of like FedEx and all of our vendors to just drive our costs down as low as we can, changing our packaging, sometimes bringing in the flush a little bit smaller than we'd like to, just to keep costs low. And then you combine that with a high quality product. And like people, that's what people want. They want high quality products at low prices. And that's how you sell a lot of products. And so that's how I think we do it. Let's drill in on that. You mentioned it. How do you how do you develop a good business idea? How do you identify one? You mentioned that TikTok. By the way, tell people where they can find your TikTok. So you give tons of business ideas like this on there. But tell them and then then elaborate a little bit. Sure. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in love with my TikTok account and it's 200 view uh, videos. But you should check it out. I think my handle on TikTok is at Molson Hart, and I just talk about all these different uh, things, ways that you can improve your life. Um, so. Basically, a lot of the best ideas I've had, I've found in other countries. And then I've like noticed that that idea or that thing that was selling in a foreign country was not selling in America. And then I would say, like, how can I adapt this product for the American market? How can I give it a cool name? And how can I improve it? And so our best selling uh, toy, uh, Brain Flakes, it's a building toy, but the original version I discovered in China, it was selling really well over there and it wasn't selling very well in the USA. I was like, what is going on here? Is there some sort of reason why it's not selling well? Because this product is awesome. And so we brought it over to the US, we gave it some good branding. And then the key component of this is that over time, you have to continuously improve your product and you have to like get some like a patent on an improvement and stuff like that. So Starting from the launch of uh, BrainFlakes in 2014 to now, we've improved it a whole bunch. Um, they're interlocking discs, and every generation of the disc looks slightly better. And now we've got a patent on the improvement. And it was the number one best-selling uh, preschool toy on Amazon uh, the past month for a little while, which was uh, pretty cool. Um, hey, a little cowbell so, for yeah, that, that's too. Well, congratulations. Congratulations on Thank that, especially you. during back to school time. Also, having those big sales means a lot of schools must be uh, must be bringing them into their hallways. Now, you just said, so think back to the, these early days and what you've learned now and what you would do different. You've come up with this idea. You're starting to get the backpacks. But how do you know when to shoot your shot and how do you do it without screwing up? Well, shooting your shot when you see a celebrity or shooting your shot when you uh, like you like have in a business, business like going out to other partners and being like, hey, I got this idea. I either need money or I need distribution or I need marketing, whatever it might be. I say that like when you're young, um, you just basically need to ask yourself a few questions like, will this idea cause me to go bankrupt? Will this idea put me in jail or like, do I want to do this if it's not going to put you in jail and it's not going to make you bankrupt and you want to do it. If you're young and inexperienced, you just have to do it because when you're inexperienced, you don't really know how to analyze the situation. And the best way to get experience is to just get it. So you just got to try and fail and you'll eventually figure things out. If it's a little bit later in your life, I would do a little bit of analysis, read some like Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, try to figure out what makes like a good long-term sustainable business kind of like stuff like patents. Patents are great because then other people can't copy you. And if other people can't copy you, you end up making a lot of money. So, you know, it's all about like, uh, you don't want to get stuck in analysis paralysis, but then depending on where you are in your life, you just got to shoot your shot. And sometimes you just got to take a risk and see where the chips land. How about with a celebrity? With a celebrity? Okay, if you see a celebrity, like I am like a weird person. And so anytime I see a celebrity, I'm like, I'm scared to talk to this person. And I don't think I should be scared to talk to this person. So I will. I, so and one of the ways to not be scared to talk to celebrities is to talk to a bunch of celebrities, because then like it's like it's like if I threw a snake on you repeatedly, eventually you'd stop being afraid of snakes. All right. So basically, if I see a celebrity, I will be like, OK, how what does this person want? How can I benefit this person in some way? And then I will like think of a way that I can benefit them. Maybe I'll like, and um, I'll just go up to them and be like, hey, I've got a bunch of followers on Twitter. I've got a bunch of followers on TikTok or like, you know, whatever. Can I get a selfie with you? I'll post it on social media. And uh, more often than not, man, they say yes. And it's kind of cool because you get a selfie and you're like, look, I got a picture of me with uh, Joe Biden or whatever. 
Yeah. Wow, I'm sure that would look fantastic. Actually, Craig Fuller was really happy that Joe Biden recently had a picture taken with a flying hat on one of Craig's other... Other company got some heat from some people for that because some people like took it political. But like at the end of the day, look, it's it's it doesn't matter if you don't like the president. It's still the president wearing your your logo. You know, I mean, I thought it was really cool. Uh, yeah. And not as a business owner, it's the coolest thing in the world. Like I if Joe Biden or Donald Trump is pictured with brain flakes, like I don't care. <laughs> like, that's awesome. We're going to see that on your social. Well, speaking of back to your business right now, peak holiday season's coming up. Are there going to be a lot of giant stuffed giraffes and brain flakes under Christmas trees? How are you preparing? What do you think this peak season is going to be like? There are going to be a lot of plush under Christmas trees and brain flakes under Christmas trees for sure, because we don't have the same supply chain problems that we've had in years past, right? So things are going to probably um, get under those Christmas trees in time. But uh, the question is sales. I don't know how many sales we're going to have. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it looks pretty bleak. Uh, I, I heard, I saw also from Craig Fuller that uh, fewer tenders were being rejected. I, and my question would be like, doesn't that always happen this time of the year? I don't know. It, the economy looks bad to me. So my prediction for peak is that we will have a week one, but anything could happen. If they drop another stimmy check in December, then like maybe it'll go crazy. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, elections are coming up. Maybe they want to pay the uh, Amer- American public to get them back in their favor. Now, you brought something to my attention. I'm no longer, I, th- I burned all my polyester underwear. You said it would make me less of a man. And uh, before I let you go, just give us this PSA. What's going on with the polyester underwear? So in this economy, we all need as much testosterone as we can get. Yeah. And so polyester underwear in a study of dogs i think it was lowers the testosterone and the sperm count of dogs and i think the way it actually works is that the polyester (laughs) like rubs against your testes or your testicles and it creates an electrical field which somehow reduces your testosterone and sperm so i have a couple of different types of underwear here and this is 100 percent cotton so this is not going to reduce your sperm it's good This is partially cotton and it's partially polyester. It's like a Mm. boxer brief. It's got some stretch to it. This might reduce your sperm and your testosterone, which is not good. And then this is like 100% polyester. So I've stopped wearing this completely. I I would imagine. It's my old thong. (laughs) It's your old one. Well, hey, man, it is 2023. You do you. Live your life. However, hey, people want to connect with you, man. They want to get some stuffed animals. I've, I, I actually use your stuffed animals. I send them to uh, colleagues and friends of mine in this business who, um, when, they, when they have kids and stuff, they're amazing. I really love the giraffe. It's, 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 uh, it's, people love it when it comes, and kids love it too. Thank you so much for that, Dooner. Uh, yeah, follow me on TikTok, at Molson Hart, and uh, go check out BrainFlakes, our educational building toy. We're training the next generation of engineers, and I think everybody everybody loves that toy. So, And it's only $17, so go pick one up. Hey, Molson, take it easy. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Dooner. It was take a lot care. of fun. Bye. Take it easy. All right, everybody. Meanwhile. I put it down when he told me. This is Peak Los Angeles. A person getting arrested, and uh, you'll see who is going to photobomb this in just a second. It's our friend from uh, my other viral video. Oh, yeah, there they are. One of those delivery robots coming right through. But what's going to happen when he engages a crime scene? That's right, robot. Push that guy out of the way. That. The police even move for these things. Remy the robot got him right out of the way. It's a changing world. It's a changing world. It's a lot happening, and there's even more happening right now with Mike Prichet. He's the CEO over at Fleet Worthy Solutions. Mike, how you doing today? Great. How are you? You uh, you bought plenty of stuffed animals yet this year? As always, you always have me following up on interviews. I don't know if I can, what I can do to excite the audience after that interview i just watched <laughs> yeah well i mean molson is a character molson's a character one of the things we were talking to him about was inventory you know he has stuffed animals he has brain flakes which are interlocking discs and he he said for him his inventory's improved his supply chain is fine he's roaring and ready to go this peak season he just hopes consumers are what are you hearing from your customers about inventory levels yeah so w- when we look at inventory the, the the inventory people are ignoring is truck inventory especially you know uh commercial vehicles, um, you know, we're finding that uh, both for hire fleets and private carriers are having a hard time, you know, getting the trucks that they need to deliver goods. So uh, that's an inventory a lot of people don't, doesn't think about, but that negatively impacts the supply chain if a, if, uh, a carrier can't get 
that vehicle to, to tow their goods with. What, what kind of issues are they having finding those vehicles? Because when we look at rejects, they're, they're pretty low. So go deeper on this. What are you seeing? Well, there's been a lot, right? Yeah. So early on this year, there was the, the fact that there was a chip um, shortage. So that trickles into the supply chain on, on the truck side. Uh, when you look at I still think there's a hangover from COVID when it comes to employees that have, you know, went back or were comfortable working home from home. So it's it's impacting their ability to have employee employees to do the work in regards to manufacturing vehicles and things. And then there's a lot of other things that happen. You know, not only do you buy the truck, but there's the whole process of upfitting that truck to make sure that truck meets a particular need that a, a carrier or a, or a company needs. So all these different things have just created a, a hard time to get trucks from OEMs to a, a location and getting that truck on the road. Well, let's say you are lucky enough to get some new assets. You have a bunch. The last thing you want them to do is sit, right? You've probably already been waiting a ton of time through ship shortages. Remember all the talk of the, the backlog in uh, Class 8 semi-trucks, all of those things. So how do you expedite the assets, Mike? You finally have them. Yeah, so so there's it's kind of a, a, the second part of the problem. So now you're getting your trucks uh, struggling with the, the shortage, uh, struggling, struggling with the fact that schedules are kind of off, and then a truck shows up at your your location, it's not permitted, it's not licensed, it's not ready to move, and it sits in your parking lot, so you lose even more money, right? So we, we work with our customers to make sure that when that MSO is released, which is basically the birth certificate for that vehicle, that we're proactively making sure that you understand what type of registration, what type of permit, what type, you know, where does it need to be delivered so that once it gets there, it gets on the road immediately rather than sitting and losing money. Interesting. Interesting. If we go deeper on this, anything else we should know? Yeah. So the big thing for us, we're, you know, you know that we talk about this three-legged stool. We have our technology CP suite. Uh, we have our, our people that are, are, are extensions of, of safety departments or licensing permitting part departments. So we've tried to build the ability to have a product that can, can be the central location for not only you know, the fleetworthy employees, our customers' employees, but these OEMs who are that you're depending on to let you know when is a truck going to be released, when is it going to be manu manufactured. So we're trying to get as much data into one single pane of glass so nothing happens, you know, that surprises you. So like I said, when that truck is delivered, you know about it um, so that you can get it on the road quickly. How do your uh, driveway services work? Let's talk about that. So we're not a driveway service ourselves, but you know we talk about the third leg of our stool is, is data, and then choreographing work. So we partner with driver driveway services. So again, they can have visibility into when is that truck going to be ready to be picked up from the OEM and delivered to the customer, and what do we need to do to make sure that we get it plated, registered, and things. So when that driveway service or driveway provider delivers that truck, literally they can get into the cabin and drive it. How do you do that? So we leverage CP Suite and, and our, our, you know, not only our technology, but our people. And again, we can get information not only from the OEM, we can, we can send alerts to a driveway provider so that they can see they have visibility and transparency into how this truck is being born and know where they fit in regards to getting it to its, its destination. So it's just another thing that we're doing that's kind of ancillary to our core offering, but very important in the process uh, when it gets to, when you focus on how do we stop losing money and, and drive efficiency. Very cool. Uh, anything else anyone should know? No, I think, um, you know, everyone understands that, you know, we work on not only driver compliance, but asset compliance. Everyone knows that there's a driver shortage and how important it is to maintain compliance on the driver side. I think people have to understand that on the asset side, it's, it's equally important. It's very complicated. And, you know, you know, organizations like Fleetware, they try to partner with our, our customers to make sure they can get through all of that, that hard process and drive efficiency. Well, Mike Prichet, Fleetworthy Solutions. Where do people go to learn more? So best place to find us is at fleetworthy.com on the web. A lot of resource and information for you to, to study to see if there's anything we can do to help drive compliance and take you beyond compliant. Beyond compliant. Take it easy, Mike. Thank you for stopping by. Have a good one. 
I yep. like it. All right. China, India, Korea, Vietnam, Belgium, the Czech Republic, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, Canada, and Mexico. More than 2,700 AIT worldwide logistics supply chain experts are stationed in these countries and, of course, in offices across the United States. And in 2023, they're adding even more global locations as the organization strives to make it easier than ever for companies to ship between Asia, Europe, the Middle East, and North America. If you're ready to create a shipping program as unique as your business, as unique as yourself, you can learn more at AITWorldwide.com. All right, elsewhere. No. Oh my god. Oh, what he's swearing about right now is a car carrier spilled over, but it's not just any car carrier. Oh, it's holding oh, a bunch of supercars. It's got a Mercedes AMG GT, Lamborghini Aventador. <laughs> Aventador. <laughs> Some, some rich guys like Dune are just completely botched that. I botch everything I say. Don't don't think you're special. The truck was on the way to the Goodwood Motor Circuit before it crashed here in Kent, England. The driver was fine. Well, maybe he was fine. I don't know if he still has his job, but he was fine. The company, Every Man Racing, says uh, all of the Every Man event staff want to say thank you to all those who are... We are very proud of all the Everyman family who just finished delivering an awesome driving event when that crash happened. Apparently, this company has over 200 supercars, so they were able to fill in the gaps after this crash happened. But I asked some drivers what they would do if they were in a similar situation. Dad of two roadside, he hauls cars. He said, rip the bandage off and just get it done so you can start calling around to find a new job. Tricky Mix says, send him the video with a sorry, with a sorry and sad face emoji. Beto Bailey said, the towing bill alone is going to cost 30 grand. Eric T. Van Chase said the keys for the truck are in the ashtray. And Jay Mysterious, he just says uh, his chest hurts. His chest hurts. He can't afford that type of car. Anyway, let's talk. Let's have the let's talk about the Jones Act. Let's let's get controversial up here. We're gonna have Salomar Cogliano, PhD, he's a professor over at Campbell University. They haven't made me an advisor. They haven't given me an honorary degree, but they're still cool in my book. And we got Captain Adela Sheik, executive at Marine Traffic. Gentlemen, you both look fantastic today. Thank you, Professor Dooner. I appreciate that. I'm on my way. How are you doing, Captain? <laughs> not bad. Not bad. Can't complain. Dog, uh, been annoying me all morning, but I'm ready to talk Jones Act today. <laughs> I, I got I got I texted my wife after Molson told me this. We got to take the polyester underwear off our dog. Randy, like he, he's not neutered, so he's is are hanging right in there. Hey, it's hot, so yeah, you got to let those things breathe. <laughs> well, no, it, it, apparently it lowers the, the testosterone count too in dogs. Yeah, too. High heat lowers that testosterone. <laughs> Now, Who is putting underwear on dogs around here? This is the question I we need to ask Molson back again. Why are they putting them on dogs in the first place? You never dress your dog up, Sal? Uh, not with underwear, no, no. Maybe a hat, maybe something, but not underwear. That doesn't come to mind. I, I, those are not the pictures you're posting on Twitter of your dog. Not yet, not yet. I, not, and not anymore, <laughs> especially. I won't be investing in any polyester uh polyester underpants. Well, we're going to talk about the Jones Act today. Now, at its very basic, sort of the pro of the Jones Act is it supports American shipbuilding in the merchant marine. The con is that it limits domestic ocean trade in the U.S. due to the high cost. That's certainly a very basic. But before we even get there, because this is an audience that may not even be experienced here, raise your hand if you think you could explain the Jones Act. I see Sal's hand. <laughs> Sal, tell me what the Jones Act is. So the Jones Act, as it's always referred to, is Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, which basically says that if you want to move cargo between two U.S. ports, you have to do it on a U.S. built, U.S. flagged, U.S. owned, and U.S. crewed ship. But it wasn't new in 1920. It had been the law of the land since 1817, and actually in the very first Congress, this concept of coastal cabotage, as it's known as, has been really a precedent that has been part of American shipping. Now, Captain, how does it work in practice? So that's sort of the theory. That's the law. How does this actually work in the real world? Yeah. Well, uh, just to add to Sal's comment there, too, the law of cabotage, it's present in over 91 countries. So it's nothing really unique to the U.S., for example. Now, in practice, it helps sustain jobs. There's over 650,000 people that support the maritime industry within the U.S. And the economic impact of that is it's grand. It's in the billions of dollars. And in practice, this helps, uh, you know, crews have work. This has 
uh, huge ramifications for environmental standards, safety standards. And it, its main purpose really was to essentially put protections for sailors because back in the day, sailors would be considered wards of state. They, they were incapable of taking care of themselves until a point where, you know, injuries, deaths, you have to take care of them. So they defined what a seaman was back in the day and allowed those protections to carry over to the day that we have today where, you know what, something goes on, you're protected, you have rights. Sal, would you agree with what he just said there? Yeah, the Jones Act gets boiled down to the cabotage, but when you look back at what it was originally put together in 1920, it was a holistic piece of legislation. It was dealing not just with coastal uh, shipping, it was dealing with seamen's rights, it was dealing with ship construction, it was dealing with the setting of international rates, uh, it dealt with conferences, what we would today call alliances. It was truly a, a kind of a national maritime strategy. And what has happened in the 103 years since the passage of the Jones Act is a lot of situations have changed. For example, one of the things we didn't have when the Jones Act was passed was interstate uh, highways or interstate pipelines or the use of freight on rail as much as we do today. And that has really substantially caused the big reduction we see in coastal shipping. You don't need to haul a container from Houston to Boston by ship because you can just put it on a rail or truck it that way. And it's usually cheaper and more efficient than going by ship. True, true. I mean, and the way it works, like for people who like aren't like right now, for example, because of the Jones Act, you couldn't have your goods in a factory in Los Angeles uh, or a distribution center. And you're like, oh, no, I need these to go through the Panama Canal and I need them over on the East Coast. You can't just take them from your factory in California, put them on the Maersk vessel that just came in, stopped at the port of L.A. and then is going through. Right. You that that is against law. You can't go port to port. Right. You can't move the goods on a foreign-built, foreign-flag vessel. So we have ships that are U.S. flag but are foreign-built. And so uh, a lot of the Maersk ships, for example, that are U.S. flag cannot do this. They're, what we see is very specialized companies, so companies like Matson that services Hawaii, Pasha, Crowley, OSG. There are a few companies that specify in, in key routes – uh, oil coming out of the uh, Gulf of Mexico heading to Florida or up to New England. So very specialized, plus a lot of smaller vessels. Again, don't forget the Jones Act applies not just to those, but to the inland waterways, to the Mississippi River, to the Great Lakes, to ferries, the Staten Island Ferry, the Washington State Ferries. Those all fall under, especially the guys on Deadly's Catch, all come under the Jones Act. But, all right, Captain, when we look at Jones Act shipping. There are no like giant U.S. carriers. We don't have like the big alliance carriers or anything like that in the United States, despite like the amount of imports that and, and exports that we do here. Has it has it been healthy for U.S. shipping or has it hurt U.S. shipping over the past hundred and uh, three years? Oh, I mean, that's a complicated question to answer, but I mean, this problem persists globally too. But for U.S. shipping itself. Um, I mean, when you talk about the different types of commodities, if we're talking container trade, like Sal mentioned, we have carriers like Matson and Pasha that supply U.S. territories. But when we talk about maybe um, commodities, oil tankers, for example, we have U.S. companies who run U.S. flag vessels. So there are there are jobs out there for mariners themselves that they have seven. We have seven maritime academies. We're constantly training out new mariners every year and new marine engineers. And the work is there. And this also applies to, uh, again, as Sal's mentioned, more intercoastal trade on maybe smaller boats, tugs carrying barges that can carry boxes too. So there, there's plenty of um, you know, industry working because of the Jones Act, whereas it could be more detrimental if the Jones Act, in my opinion, gets repealed. Okay, but Sal, look at these numbers. According to the Cato Incident uh, Institute, not incident, not Cato Incident. It was a terrible one in history. It said a new U.S. tanker, a new, a new U.S. built tanker, for example, is estimated to cost $130 million more than one built abroad. That's a serious competitive disadvantage, it sounds like. 
It is. And you also got to factor in what creates that. I mean, one of the things we saw is back in the 1980s, we ended the idea of what we call differential subsidies. These were uh, basically loans and costs provided by the U.S. government to help offset the higher cost to build in the United States. But you also have to think about the fact that the biggest shipbuilders in the world today, China, Japan, Korea, which build 94% of all the world's ships, from 2010 to 2018, China provided $132 billion in shipbuilding subsidies to lower the costs to build those tankers. Whereas in that same period, whereas China provides $132 billion, the U.S. provided through Title 11 loans $77, not billion, million dollars. And so that's where you see a lot of the cost. It's two, it's two costs in, in particular, Dunar. It is the cost of the vessel and it's the cost of the mariners because we pay a, a kind of a living wage, whereas the minimum wage internationally for mariners is about $22 a day. And this is where you see it. It's one of the reasons why you see countries provide these uh corporate uh, tax loopholes, these uh, incentives to make it more compatible or more, excuse me, uh, competitive for ships and companies to operate under their flag, something we've stopped doing in the United States. Why have we stopped? Is, is there a reason? It sounds like we're undermining shipbuilding competitiveness here by not supporting it. Uh, does, does our country just not find it necessary? Let's go with you, Captain. Well, I or Sal, go ahead. how about you? No, go ahead, deal. No, go so ahead. Go ahead. I, I would argue that we got to the point in the late end of the Cold War where we had this idea that freedom of the seas are the goal. You know, we can use open registries, Panama, Liberia, the Marshall Islands. And, you know, what really mattered was, you know, what do I care who carries my goods as long as I get it really cheap? The problem you're seeing now, and there's a great book by Bruce Jones, To Rule the Waves, where he's talking about this idea that we're seeing global competitiveness arriving again on the oceans. And what we may start seeing is a peer-to-peer -peer conflict or, or competition between nations. And if the U.S. wants to be a true maritime power, it doesn't just need a big navy. It also needs that commercial aspect. It's one of the reasons why you see U.S. Navy shipbuilding costing so much now, because we got out of commercial shipbuilding. Captain, is the Jones Act a matter of national security? 100%. The, its main reason is really it's, it's a service for the country. It's not, as, as we were talking earlier, it's a very complex law. It deals with shippings and shipbuildings and et cetera, et cetera. But its main purpose is a national security and to be prepared for peacetime, support humanitarian efforts, et cetera, or even wartime to support the Navy. Um, we have the military slip command. I used to uh, work with them too, and we would trace and follow naval vessels and we were private, essentially, and we would supply and replenish the fleet. So the importance of the Jones Act is more than just saying, you know what, we're stifling innovation and we're so expensive, et cetera. It's, it's a service just like the U.S. Postal Service. It's not supposed to make us money. It's supposed to work for the U.S. citizens. Sal, is it doing that? Is it is it protecting our national security? Is it working for U.S. citizens? It's it's not working right now, and this is the problem. When we need reform, you know, this is the issue I have. There are many, and one of those institutes is the one you you sent you cited. There, we'll talk about repeal it and rainbows and unicorns. Everything will be fantastic, and I would argue that's not the case at all. What we need to do is reform it. It needed to be kept up, and the problem is we kind of ignored it, like we do many other things. We just assumed it'll be fine, it'll work its way out, and it hasn't. You know, you have to ensure that there's cargo to be moved. That means. Cargo cargo preference. That means incentivizing moving U.S. cargo on U.S. ships. You need to be able to fund and offset the additional cost to build vessels. We can start building ships in the United States tomorrow. Yes, they're going to be expensive because we only build one or two a year. That makes them a work of art. That doesn't make them a ship. Japan, uh, Korea, China do almost assembly line. We have to get back to that point of doing that. And one of the most important things, which is what you do, Dooner and Freightways, is raise this level of attention of how important ocean shipping is to everybody. I would argue that the reason you got the Merchant Marine Act in 1920 was during World War I, all of a sudden, all the foreign shipping that we relied on to move our international shipping went away. And all of a sudden, goods piled up on our docks. And we couldn't 
export, we couldn't import. Fortunately, we had a coastal fleet that we could put into that role. We don't even have that coastal fleet today. So that should a disruption happen today, we would be in a much worse position than we were 100 years ago. Captain, are you a part of the Jones Act orthodoxy that thinks that it's completely fine as it is, or does it need reform? And if it does, what kind of reform? Yeah, no, great point. It, as I mentioned, it does need to be reformed. It, it's a law that was enacted in 1920. There was a 1936 um, kind of an update to it as well. And it needs to speak upon the world that we live in today. I mean, we're, we're more interconnected. Globalization it runs the world. And I believe that if it comes to where reform should take place, I mean, there, there's an instance, for example, North, the Northeast with offshore wind. There's a lot of work going out there. There is an organization that controls out there and make sure to see if there are people that are boats that are compliant. That is one area that we can say, okay, we need some reform rules to allow maybe more assets to come in, build up this offshore fleet. Otherwise, it could take a longer period of time, it may cost more money. So there are, you know, there are some pitfalls for the Jones Act as it currently is, and it does need a refresher. And this is this is a great time for us to be t- talking about this act versus simply just seeing it on, you know, maybe national news and someone from the cabinet saying, "Oh, the Jones Act X Y Z." But the problem also is that most individuals in the world, or at least in the U.S. They're not really in tune with what it entails. So more and more dialogue needs to be uh, to had to figure out what is essential and then what can kind of be, you know, kept as is. Like, for example, I would say the protections for mariners. The protections for, well, yeah, obviously you definitely want to protect mariners. You know, most people, you, you made up a good point. Your average American, they're never, your layman, not your seaman, they're never going to hear about the Jones Act unless there's like a big disaster, right? There's something like Maui, for example, or uh, when there's a big earthquake on an island or hurricane season's coming up because we can't send our, our own ships to, uh, to, to these places. Does, Sal, does it impede disaster response? Well, no. I mean, in fact, I, I would th- argue that the Maui example is a perfect example of that because what you have on the ground in Hawaii is Matson. This is a company that's been around since the 1870s, 1880s, and they have an infrastructure in place to go into Maui, which means that they provide regular service in and out of Hawaii. They have tug and barge service to get you in. As a matter of fact, one of the things they've been able to do is plus up that service. They are actually getting more on the ground. People will tell you, hey, you know, Hawaii is halfway between Asia in the United States. Well, first off, you're looking at a flat map, look at a globe. That's not the way the world looks. Uh, It's not halfway. It's actually way out of the way of most ships transporting. And plus, even if you bring foreign shipping in, and foreign ships do go in and out of Hawaii, but you would need dedicated service in there. And to think that foreign shipping is not going to take advantage of the situation and foreign companies are not going to profit as much as they can off of it is just a misnomer. Matson has a historic relationship with Hawaii. And while there's a lot of relation, a lot of issues we should be talking about, what can we do to offset the higher cost of using U.S. ships and U.S. mariners? That's something that's of national security. That's the issue we should be talking about. How do we incentivize that? How do we lower the cost so it's more cost effective to operate ships with U.S. flag and U.S. cargo. But same thing off Puerto Rico. When Puerto Rico gets hit by a hurricane, the issue with Puerto Rico usually isn't the delivery of diesel fuel, as you heard of a year ago. The issue is the inland distribution. But the problem is people will use any natural disaster to make their case against the Jones Act without fully understanding it. Well, there is a headline on FreightWaves.com right now that says distribution centers over Maui are overflowing with donations, a lot of those sealess and airless. Whenever there's a disaster, people bring a ton of stuff, and then all of uh, the responders on the other end say, "No, no, stop! Like, just just send money." All these goods become a complete logistical nightmare on our end because then we start. We have to become this big distribution center for disaster relief, and a lot of it it's hard to pair up with people. Would you agree? Like, how is there a better way to manage disasters, Captain? Yeah, so you know, Tal makes all great points. Hits them all. There's a lot of inland trade happening, tugs and barges. That's how you get goods movement island to island. Um, so what's interesting is that uh, a few years ago, the DOT enacted billions of dollars for developing um, newer, what we call training ships. So the Maritime Academies, you train officers to join the workforce. Now, these officers have to take 
time and collect seed time. You have to, it's opportunities to learn to actually take the con of the vessel. And we've already started to build out what we call national security, multi-purpose or multi-mission vessels. And so we've already started taking delivery of the first one. We should be, I believe, going to SUNY Maritime in New York. And these vessels are purpose-built to support, um, you know, issues of humanitarian aid. So, for example, I think that once this Lahaina incident occurred, I mean, we had Matson, luckily. We have a lot of individuals that live in Hawaii are very in tune with shipping and moving goods. So it made things really efficient. But I believe that maybe at the federal level, they should have said, you know what, we have this multi-mission vessel. We should utilize it. It should be have sent out to Hawaii. It could be sent out to Puerto Rico. There's another tropical storm brewing in the Atlantic right now. We don't know what's going to happen yet. But there are assets that are there. We just need to have these decisions be taken at the higher federal level, whether it's Mayorad, which is the Maritime Administration, or the DOT or simply come from Congress or from the White House. So it, it's it's steered away from the, the sexiness that there's an issue. And then again, like some company comes in, wants to take advantage of it, creates a big media buzz versus, hey, let's stop. Let's see what we have. What can we do? And then let's send it out and utilize those resources. So true or false? He mentioned he mentioned government here. Does it fund lobbyists, not innovation, the non-reformed version, the current Jones Act, the way it is? I, you know, I mean, obviously you're going to have lobbyists no matter what you do. I, I think one of the big problems we have is that we don't have enough people educated in what the Jones Act, what even maritime shipping does. I mean, you watched it over the past three years. Uh, look what it took to get the Ocean Shipping Reform Act to get some oomph into the Federal Maritime Commission, some uh, an entity that needed to have more administrative power, more oversight than what they had. And unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of groups that oppose the Jones Act, and they they fund very big, you know, against it for obvious reasons. Uh, they also do see that there is a, a justification in repealing it because they think it's going to lead to lower shipping costs. The problem is, all you're going to do is take a look at examples like over in England of P&O ferries, what happened when they reflagged those vessels, they fired the English crews, and the disaster that befell them over there. Again, it, it's not the end-all, be-all solution. And I think the best way to do it is by informing, is by having the maritime academies, by out, uh, outlets like you and Freight Waves talking about this so that people become more familiar with it. Because unfortunately, what fills the airways are those who oppose the Jones Act. They're the ones who write the papers, the think tanks, have the money to have somebody sit there and do it. I got to go teach a class. This is, you know, I don't have time to be sitting there writing it all the time. Captain Adil's got his job to do. It's hard for us to really convey the importance of U.S. shipping. I agree. You guys have convinced me. You've convinced me the Jones Act is sort of fine, but it does need reform. Stop listening to uh, these paid white papers at some of these places. They're not good. Now, let's talk about shipping. Another big issue, one that um, that talking about ex like exploiting things, getting people fearful. This is one that can get people scared really quick. It's the Panama Canal, the water levels on there. Um, some of the rhetoric around it has gotten a little crazy. Greg Miller wrote a very grounded piece about it last week. Sal, you also said, I don't think this is something to worry about yet. Is that is that true? Well, you know, Greg made the point that what you're seeing right now is what's not being disrupted right now is containers. That was his big point in that piece. You know, the container shipping is moving through as we see it. However, I, I would caveat one point in Greg's piece is that we are seeing that the container ships, while they're moving through the canal, have to lighten their loads, mm. which means that should all of a sudden demand go up on the east and Gulf Coast, then we're going to have an issue. The real big thing that Greg highlights really well in the, in, in the point is that the the Panama Canal is used almost, I mean, one of the biggest users is the United States, particularly our exports, grain, uh, coal, 
or, and most importantly, liquefied natural gas and liquefied petroleum gas. That is what's lining up at the end of the canal on the north end. And if those delays continue, remember what we're seeing is a drop in water levels, which is minimizing draft going through. And the way the canal is handling that is by slowing down passage through the canal, minimizing the number of ships. That could have an impact on our ability to export, creating an energy crisis across the spectrum, not just in the United States, but particularly in Asia. Well, that's some good insight, too. So less volume actually coming through on each ship to get that weight down. Captain, anything to add to that? Sal wrapped it up beautifully. That That is exactly the, the issue. Container shipping, luckily, is not impacted much. They also one of the biggest users. They have a lot of priority. It is the bulk trades, whether it's wet bulk, dry bulk. And, you know, a few days ago, the authority uh, issued they're going to extend the draft restrictions for additional 10 months. That puts us into uh, July of next year. And so we don't know what's going to happen. Will it get worse if the rainfall doesn't really come? Sure. And then we'll see the impact. We'll see shortages. Uh, We'll probably start seeing a lot of diversions occur, too. And we're already starting to see that happen. Uh, What's interesting, too, is when we look at LNG, for example, there are vessels that just simply are loaded too heavy. And no matter what, they just simply cannot transit the canal. And they're taking a long way around South America. They're adding over two weeks of a transit time. That's more fuel. So could there be increased uh, day rate, as they say, usage for these LNG carriers and tankers? Yes, that can happen. And what would that mean? Well, then consumers will start flipping the bill for those. All right. So keep an eye on that canal. We're not out of the clear yet there. And there's already some activity happening with what's happening there. Now, you guys mentioned China. We talked about their shipbuilding and all of the subsidies. They have a a modern marvel over there. Show this video. It is the Three Gorges Dam in Yichang. Look at this thing. It's kind of weird. Britannica says that when construction of the dam officially began in 1994, it was the largest engineering project in China. That can't be in history, right? This can't be a bigger engineering project than the Great Wall. What do you think, Sal? We need to invest in stuff like this. Do we need to do we need to get to China speed? Well, I mean, China and infrastructure is where the U.S. was in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. You're seeing that. China relies heavily on their inland waterway system, the Yangtze, uh, the Yellow River. All these rivers provide their key transportation. They rely on it kind of like their interstate highway system. So they invest strongly. And also the Three Gorges Dam does a lot for them in terms of power utilization. It set a record in 2020. It set a new world record for annual power generation volume through that. You you like it, Captain? We need more of this stuff. I mean, I love it. It makes sense. But, you know, for the U.S., geographically speaking, we're we're almost a really almost perfect area. We have two, three coasts, essentially. We have Alaska up in the northwest. Do we really need these things? You know what? Our our inland infrastructure, the rail, the trucking, I mean, it works beautifully for us. Um, If there is something to compete with the canal, the most closest or the closest um, canal for us that we could use, uh, Mexico has been working on what's called the Isthmus Project. And for anyone listening, um, I implore, say, go ahead and Google it. It's really interesting. Their uh, key value is to say to have ships kind of get away from the canal, come to their ports, uh, stack the containers down and we'll rail it to the other ocean. And then another vessel will just simply come pick it up. So that project has been ongoing. It'll be interesting to see how that, uh, you know, kind of takes a chunk of the market share. If anything, if carriers decide, you know what, that could be a more efficient approach. Um, but, you know, I think we're we're just in a really wonderful position as a nation to have so much waterway, so much coastal areas that we don't really need something as big as the Chinese project. But to see that innovation take place it is, it is amazing to see. Yeah. Well, hey, Merry Isthmus to them. It looks pretty cool. Now, Sal, take a look at the inside of a car carrier. I want, the, the Maritime Pilot put this out. This was giving you an idea of how many cars are inside some of these things. This one right here is the Harmony Leader. It has 5,000 vehicles over 12 decks. In the news, there has been a, a lot of, there's been a few car fires out there, Sal. Anything we should be concerned about? 
Well, I mean, you look around there real quick and you see how packed that is. Now yeah. imagine one of those vehicles burning, filling up the compartment with smoke, and you as a firefighter going into there, not even knowing that layout, you're looking at the uh, straps on the ground that hold those vehicles in place, all trip hazards, barely able to get between the vehicles. Uh, those straps burn through, and then with a lot of water, those vehicles start to move. This is a really dangerous environment. Again, we're moving a lot of vehicles around the world in a way never before seen. And unfortunately, the technology is not keeping up for how to put out car fires. And I'm not just talking about EV car fires. Let's be clear. Cars have changed in their manufacturing since the 1990s. And you know, I'm a volunteer firefighter for 20 years. It is tougher and tougher to put out a car. And when you have multiple cars involved, even flooding the compartments with just CO2 isn't enough. And we've seen that with the fire in Newark that killed two Newark firefighters and the Fremantle Highway that killed one of the crew members on board who had to jump off the vessel because the fire got so far out of control they couldn't even launch the lifeboats. Wow. Hey, guys, we are out of time today. You are the GOATs. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Sal, how do people find you? How do they find What's Up With Shipping? Sure. Uh, what's going on with shipping is on YouTube. Uh, feel free to come on over there. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Mercogliano S. And I am not on an advisory board of anyone, so I'm not like doing it. I'll put in a good word for you, Sal. How about yourself, Captain? You know, find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter, Captain Adil. Um, otherwise, you know what? Lovely being here. Always a pleasure, Dooner. Thank you guys for stopping by today. You can find me on Twitter at Timothy Dooner. That is D-O-O-N-E-R. You can find the show at FW What the Truck. Subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. That's Apple, Spotify, whatever you listen to. Or if you want to watch this in HD live in living color, subscribe to FreightWave's YouTube channel. That is our home. we got a big playlist with our episodes. Hey, thank you all. Take care. Don't be a stranger and go Big Orange!